If renewable energy was iron, then storage would be vitamin C, playing a vital role in our energy system's ability to absorb the variable renewable energy sources available to us. However, beneath the umbrella term that is storage lies a broad range of technologies, from the lithium-ion batteries that we're all familiar with to compressed hydrogen stored in salt caverns. But what are the strengths of each of these storage technologies and what roles can they individually play in replacing the various characteristics that we lose as we transition from fossil fuels to renewable energy? Is hydrogen the answer to all our problems? Or do we need to stop looking at it as a silver bullet in the horizon? To find out, I'm talking with Frank Burke, Technical Advisor to the Irish Energy Storage Association and Rory Monaghan from the National University of Ireland Galway who has specialised in hydrogen for almost 20 years. I'm Paddy Finn. And this is the Electricity Exchange. Rory, Frank, great to have you here. How are you both? Great. Great. Yeah, very good. So first of all, just starting into uh, storage in the electricity sector. So I think when everybody thinks about storage with electricity, they think about using storage to move energy from times of abundance to times of when it's not available. Um, But even what we see right now with the use of storage that's been deployed in the system, it's really been designed towards high power, low duration to address other services that right now are the binding constraint for integrating renewables in the system. So what are the other main challenges that storage is needed to address in the operation of the electricity system, Frank? Yeah, I mean, most of the storage at the moment is only half-hour storage, and it's there to provide grid stability. Um, so just to explain that, the conventional plant does a lot more than just produce electricity. It's a lot of things going on in the background. So if, for example, um, a generator like Money Point trips out, you suddenly lose 300 megawatts. So there's 300 megawatts less going into the grid. The customer demand is the same as it was. So the grid slows down and all the generators slow down. Generators are big, heavy machinery with steam turbines. So as they slow down, they give up their kinetic energy in the same way as an electric car. When an electric car slows down, it gives up some of its kinetic energy and it feeds back into the batteries. So the generators, the big, heavy machinery are doing the same thing. Then, say if, the, if there's a steam turbine, um, the, the, the steam turbine um, will slow down as well and the valves will open to let more steam in and then the boiler senses that and, and um, it increases its firing. So from the very instant that money point trips, the generators and the steam turbines and the boilers are substituting um, that loss of 300 megawatts. And if you only have wind and solar, then, you know, the wind and solar can't give any more. Um, so that's one of the things that, that it does. Um, and that's, that, that's an interesting one because I think we, we often forget that. You made a point that with conventional power stations, we think of them as, as energy providers, but they have a lot more characteristics other than just the delivery of energy. They're, they're also... They're highly available to have that false compensation. And actually, I get, a, I get a text message every time a power station trips on the grid. You know, our systems are monitoring the frequency and that. And it's, it's actually incredible how frequent it is. Every few days I'm getting a message. So that's in tens or even hundreds of megawatts that the power systems immediately start off. And I always, I've always pictured it as being the power system with conventional plant. It's like you have a spring that gives this slow time constant. Yeah. So you need to be able to react much quicker um, than that. But then I guess you also need storage in for, for other elements of operation of the grid as well in terms of fast, other types of fast ramping and duration as well. Yes, I mean, um, if, if, it, if a generator, say, is late coming on or, or say in the case of wind, when we expect a, a whole load more wind to come at, say, 10 o'clock and the wind doesn't arrive until 11 o'clock, um, the grid could be short of a thousand or maybe two thousand megawatts between ten o'clock and eleven o'clock, so you need a lot of ramping, what's called ramping, to be able to cover that. Now there'll be a bit of notice, but you'll need storage that can, would say, an hour's notice can come on up to full load and maintain that um, until the wind actually catches up. 
Um, the other thing is that the generators are very stable in their output, whereas the wind and the solar are varying, you know, from minute to minute as the cloud goes by or as, you know, discussed the wind. So the frequency regulation to keep that frequency absolutely steady at 50 hertz all the time um, is, is going to be much more difficult. And um, something like um, flywheels could, you know, um, could do that, could keep it um, steady. So you, you need something just to have those little adjustments, uh, a bit of exporting into the grid, a bit of a, absorbing when the frequency gets too high. Yeah, I think that was like, you know, this stuff is very lesser known, isn't it, in terms of like being binding constraints. And when we look at uh, other markets that have higher renewable content than Ireland, it's very important to remember where that the sources that that's coming from, because generally where there's markets that are ahead of Ireland in terms of renewable integration, they have vast access to hydro. And hydro gives you that inertia that you don't have with wind and solar, whereas what we have is wind and uh, soon we're going to have more solar. So it's it's about making the best use of the resources available to us. It is, but also Ireland is a very small country, um, so that, uh, say you lose 300 megawatts, 300 megawatts is a lot in Ireland. 300 megawatts on mainland continent is very little. So we're seeing problems on the grid here. Air grid is seeing problems on the grid here that nobody else really has seen, and we're way ahead of the curve in in terms of being able to integrate um, large volumes of renewable onto the onto the grid, I mean already, um, AirGrid were able to uh, run the grid with seventy five percent of it coming from wind and solar. I mean nobody else is doing that, um, so you know we are ahead of the curve there. Yeah. And as, uh, interconnectors then are often looked towards as being you know that's our saving grace in a time when we mm-hmm. don't have high wind on the system here. Um, but we have to remember as well that a, an interconnector has a potential to trip too. So, yes. But whereas we are, we're used to, uh, if a power station trips, we're used to making up the excess, right? So basically, you know, compensating for uh, a shortage. But an interconnector can trip and have both effects. So an interconnector can find that it's exporting 500 megawatts yeah. and, that, and then it trips. And now the country is stranded with an extra 500 yeah. megawatts it doesn't want. So I guess when we look at storage, its ability to be bidirectional um, and to have kind of, you know, have symmetry in what it can do is very useful in actually helping us to make best use of our interconnectors as well, because they, pl- they play a role as a failsafe that if the interconnector trips, be it importing or exporting, the storage can either absorb more energy or release more energy. Yeah, and it needs to be able to do that pretty well instantaneously as it trips. Otherwise, the frequency would go very high and, and that could cause problems as well as when it goes low. And you're talking in the order of milliseconds. You're talking in the order of milliseconds, yeah. You're talking about a fraction of a second. I mean, the plants need to be able to go from zero to full output in maybe a fifth of a second, you know, faster than you can click your fingers. And it's not only about the plant actually achieving that output, even to, you know, to verify that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a valid event that it's responding to and everything, that the, the technology behind that is obviously pretty sophisticated to ensure that it's reacting proportionally to the problem on the grid. It is. Um, and I suppose that's one of, the, one of the things at the moment, that uh, uh, if you have a generator that's synchronised to the grid, it's going the same speed as the grid. So as, as, as the frequency drops, it will slow down and it will automatically give up its kinetic energy. Whereas now, um, when you're using storage to replicate that, the storage has to measure the system frequency and very reliably, and then has to work out through its control system what it needs the storage plant to do to, to ramp up very rapidly or to ramp down very rapidly and to, then to be able to maintain that. So it, there's a whole different set of, of, of timescales from a fraction of a second right out to the minutes, you know, when the sun is shining or clouds go by to hours and and today's and maybe even and also even weeks because you can get high pressure over the country for two weeks and if we have high pressure Britain probably has high pressure too so a lot of our interconnector is with Britain so that's not a, a solution so we need we need some uh, kind of storage to cover the longer periods and and that comes into maybe where green hydrogen um, where you might talk about Rory. Mm. Yeah. That, and that's uh, a really interesting point because it highlights the full gambit that needs to be covered here, right? So you've talked about, you know, response to f- full output in in a fifth of a second, 
Mm. That's kind of one suite of requirements that we have to try to address. And then we need to be able to deal with a situation where we're dealing with something like a two-week frost and yeah. just wind is mm. dead in Ireland and any country that we're interconnected to is is uh, uh, being affected by the same high pressure as Ireland. Um, so, like, really where storage, it's it's not just a single solution. It's a, it's a range of solutions to address a, a range of problems. But then when we look, I guess, electricity constitutes about one-fifth of our of our final energy use. Now, that is increasing over time as we look to electrify the likes of transport and heat, etc. Um, but, you know, we need to look at... We, we've already seen the, the range of challenges that need to be addressed with storage in just the electricity sector. Mm-hmm. But for us to decarbonize, it, we have to tackle all sectors. Uh, so what are the other key sectors that we need to focus on, Rory, um, to, uh, where, where storage is going to be needed to address... The, uh, the challenges of decarbonisation. Yeah, so so as you as you correctly point out, that we're about at, at about one fifth of our energy use being electricity. Now that is changing, and that's a good thing. Is changing because um, electricity has shown itself to be the most straightforward sector of our energy use to decarbonise. It's it's um, we're up at around forty percent renewables now in electricity. The other eighty percent then is what we call direct use of fuels. So that's burning of fuels for transport, burning of fuels for heat, and they're about forty percent each, more or less. So um, these 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 fossil fuels that we're currently using now for these sectors, these are becoming um, replaced by electricity. Um, we see more electric cars on the road to move towards heat pumps. So so the 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 en- the end use of energy is electrifying. And as they electrify, they become more efficient. Uh, it's much more efficient to use electric vehicles, much more efficient to use heat pumps for heating. But there are certain parts of those sectors that are very, very difficult to electrify directly. So what we think about when we talk about hydrogen, and in particular green hydrogen, which I'm going to talk about mostly today, is green hydrogen is a potential way to indirectly electrify these sectors that are very challenging to electrify directly. So when when i when i talk about these these hard to decarbonize sectors i mean trucking long distance vehicles um ships aircraft certain types of industrial processes that need very high temperatures so so there are there are um they don't make up the bulk of our emissions but they make up the most difficult part so those of us that are working on green hydrogen we see hydrogen as being a way that can decarbonize these end uses and also give us this long duration storage these 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 weeks to potentially months that we might need as we move to a very very renewable dependent electricity system and of course we need to continue to improve efficiency as well at the same time because we need to try to reduce the scale of the problem that it is absolutely absolutely no it, it's it's all about priorities and it's all about going for the low-hanging fruit first. And efficiency has to be the first step we take. Um, you know, changing people's behaviours needs to be very important as well. Um, moving towards public transport and things like that. Direct electrification, which gets more, which, which increases the market for renewable electricity. And then, and then this, this sort of hard to decarbonize last bit, yeah. which, which is really where you know, where in my opinion, we should be targeting our our efforts on hydrogen. It's it's sort of, hydrogen is, is painted by some as being a kind of a, a silver bullet, a solution to all the problems. And those of us who work in the area, we see that it's not. We see that if, if, we, if, if we try to decarbonize everything we do with, uh, with hydrogen, we'd have a terribly expensive um, yeah. energy sector. It, it, it's, it's, so, you know, what I'm going to be, talking about um, later on I, I hope is is the idea that hydrogen should be targeted where it's where it's needed and where it can actually perform well yeah and look it's important for us to remember that what we're used to with fossil fuels it's chemical storage but it's chemical yeah. storage that took millions of years to form and we're, we're kind of running out of dinosaurs to burn. Absolutely, at, yeah, at, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like at this point. The biggest energy storage um, devices or systems in Ireland are the oil storage depots at our ports, yeah. the piles of coal at Money Point. That is, that is stored energy. Um, even the natural gas that's, that's, that's in our gas piping network 
there is there is there is gigawatt hours of stored energy in there. So so it's it's um you know I think and I commend you for 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 bringing hydrogen into the conversation here. It 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 is energy storage, but where where hydrogen I think can make the most impact is when we start looking at getting electricity out of the traditional uses of of electricity and into these 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 uh, these 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 chemical energy heavy sectors. Absolutely, and Frank, when we kind of coming back on to the electricity sector, um, a lot of people we're familiar with lithium ion. It's mm. it's it's. It powers our world, it powers our laptops, our phones, you know, we're, we're, we're quite used to that now, we're seeing it in electric cars. Historically, we would have been used to pumped hydro, you know, at least, at least the general public were familiar with the concept of pumped hydro. But there's a huge, my understanding is that there's a huge range of technologies available for storage, um, some of which we, we mightn't even think of as storage because we always think of batteries and chemical batteries as storage. Uh, and they all have different characteristics in terms of how they perform, etc. Uh, obviously, you know, with your work with Lumcloon Energy, um, you would have looked at a range of technologies to bring to bear. So you'd have quite a bit of experience across their characteristics and their strengths and weaknesses and where they should be used. Uh, can you take us through just some of the various uh, energy storage technologies from those that would be, you know, uh, quite well understood to some of those that perhaps are, are less understood and a bit more out there? Yes, um I mean, lithium-ion is is dominant at the moment, and that's partly because it's been used for so many things, as you say, and particularly for electric vehicles. So the production of lithium-ion batteries has become um, very efficient, and so the price is reasonably competitive. But there are other chemistries like sodium-ion, which are they don't have the same energy density, so it, they're not so good for um, vehicles, but they're perfectly, ad- they will be perfectly adequate when they're, um, when they finally come in uh, for stationary storage for, for use on the grid. Um, and they have certain benefits. And, and there are other kind of batteries like flow batteries, um, where the energy is stored in the liquid rather than on the plates. And that means that you can, if you want to get, say, four-hour storage or eight-hour storage or 12-hour storage, you put in more liquid. So they're very competitive for the longer duration storage. Um, and as you say, that's just that's just batteries. Um, there's things like um, flywheels. Uh, we did a demonstration project um, um, several years ago uh, where we um, used flywheels um, for stabilizing the grid and one of the big advantages of flywheels is they can do an almost infinite number of cycles compared to say batteries where you might be limited to say 5,000 cycles in the lifetime and so they're very good they have a a, they're very good in 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 doing certain things but not so good in doing other things then you have things like liquid air compressed air energy storage or actually where you compress it to the extent it becomes liquid so you can have liquid air energy storage um, pumped hydro, as you say, um, there's there's a whole range of um, thermal storages as well, um, which we don't kind of associate with the electricity industry. And I think there's there's two areas there. One is where you can um, have a, a change over as an industrial level. Um, a heat demand to electricity and then you have the capability if you have if you can store heat that you can vary your electricity demand so at times when um, the the grid is short you can use your stored energy at the times when there's say an excessive wind you can you can take in large amounts of of energy and store it um, store it as heat um, and the other type of, of heat is where you take electricity and you convert it into heat or you convert it into cooling um, for industrial prop, uh, uh, processes and you can, store, you can store that and you can then convert it back into electricity. So you have a kind of a triangle with electricity, heat and cooling and you can go from any w- one corner of the mm. triangle to any other corner mm. of the triangle. So that gives you great, great flexibility. So there's... There's a there's a huge there's a huge range there, um, quite apart from green hydrogen. When we think of thermal storage, what I find interesting about thermal storage is that we have to remember that it is storage. 
and we I think sometimes we often forget that um, that and that's also perhaps one that's most applicable across uh, all sectors of uh, of let's say from residential, industrial, commercial, because you know your home, the walls in your home, and your concrete floors are thermal storage. Mm-hmm. Your hot water tank is thermal storage and the ability to actually use that to provide flexibility back to the electricity system is is key but it's really interesting the the, the idea that uh, you know when you go to larger scale then that there is the opportunity to actually return that heat to electricity mm. so I didn't even wasn't even aware that the concept existed. yes and, and and there are some plants that have been developed um, in Europe on on that um, relatively Small scale, when I say small scale, I'm talking about maybe 10 megawatts, um, but there's no reason why they couldn't be ramped up to 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts. And now you're, you're talking about large scale capabilities. Oh, and when we look at, I suppose, one question that often comes up in relation to um, uh, chemical batteries is, are we moving from from oil to something else, you know, so another resource that's going to be, that we're going to deplete it just as quickly. And I know, let's say, when we look at the likes of lithium-ion, that there is an opportunity for us to continue the use of the assets beyond their, their initial use. So, for example, you can take the batteries that would have been used in cars, used in UPSs and data centres, etc., and you can deploy them then on grid scale, etc. Et, et um, but how do, how, when you look at... You mentioned flow batteries, you mentioned lithium-ion batteries and, and, and other forms. What, what view do you have in terms of our access to resources? Is the public perception that we're basically moving to another resource that we're just going to deplete, is that a problem that we're going to have to face in the, in the near to medium term? Or um, is there perhaps more access to these resources than we think about? And also with various technology types, are there others that are more abundant than, than others. Yeah, I mean, I, I think people are aware of, um, you know, the, some of the components that go into lithium-ion batteries and the difficulty of, of mining them and so on. So there are, there are issues about that. And I suppose there is limited resources of everything on the earth. So, you know, some of those batteries, it, it's not an immediate problem, but it could be a problem down the road. And one of the advantages of, of say, the, the sodium ion battery compared to the lithium ion battery is that it uses um, materials that are readily available and that of, of which the, there's, there's plenty on the earth, so they won't run out. So I think to answer your question, I think we'll find that some battery technologies, there may be a crunch point at some mm-hmm. stage in into the future, but at that stage people will see that coming and and develop other kinds of batteries where the materials are more readily available. I guess with fossil fuels, there aren't incremental technology phases that bring us to new types of fossil fuels, really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're mm-hmm. kind of running out of those peak oil, as, as highlighted. Whereas at least, though, with, with uh, chemical storage technologies, there's continuous development that is uncovering more opportunities for us to use more materials effectively for... So I, what we need to, I guess, do is we need to continually move from stage to stage and use what's the best technologies available at the time would be, would be quite key there. And in terms of the applications in that you're looking at, Frank, you know, what ones are really standing out right now for you? Um, commercially? Yeah, commercially. Um, well, I suppose lithium-ion at the moment is being used... Um, Certainly at the moment in Ireland has been used mainly for um, grid stability. Um, uh, the markets aren't really available, aren't really developed enough at the moment for longer duration batteries. Um, I can talk about that later on. Um, the other one that's coming at the moment is, uh, which I haven't mentioned, is synchronous condensers um, to provide inertia to the system. You remember I was saying earlier on that you know, if there's a dip in the system frequency, the, the the generators, because they have big steam turbines behind them and the generators themselves are very heavy, they have lots of momentum to sort of ride through the bumps. So they'll provide that inertia, they'll give up their kinetic energy. Um, and they'll do that automatically. They're not reliant on a measurement of system frequency. So the, it happens automatically. So if you take a generator or a motor and you connect it to the grid, you synchronize it to the grid, so its speed is the same as the grid, and you put a big flywheel at the end of it to give it extra weight, it will perform the same 
um, purpose in terms of being able to provide inertia. So if the system frequency goes down, it'll give up some of its kinetic energy um, to um, to electrical energy. And it will also, the other things you can do with it is um, you can provide voltage control with it and there's a thing called fault current that's needed as well. So there's all these electrical uh, things that are provided by conventional generators that aren't provided by um, wind and solar generation. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting that the fact that thermal power plants are big lumps of spinning metal was a benefit. Uh-huh. Yes. And, so, and so another big lump of spinning metal is a form of storage. Uh, when we talked in about, I suppose, the abundance of the materials, yep. that has to bring you on to hydrogen yep. when you think about yep. the abundance of a material. But I guess with hydrogen, the challenge is the conversion. And there's yes. multiple, you know, when we look at various ways in which hydrogen can be produced and the input fuels for hydrogen, there's a range of options, and this has been your area of research, Rory, for 20-odd uh-huh. years. Yep. And then we have to look at the, the round-trip efficiency and how it returns to us, and sure. we, can, we can have fuel cells, we can combust it and otherwise. Yep. Can, you, can you take us through, sure. the, both on the input side and the, on the output side with hydrogen, what are the options available and the kind of strengths and weaknesses Absolutely. of each of them? For sure, yeah. So, so the first thing to say is that hydrogen is used, is produced by the millions of tonnes every year. It's it's um, it's used primarily in the chemicals industry. So it's it's a it's a key ingredient for ammonia, which goes towards fertilizer production, methanol, which is used um, for producing a whole range of chemicals, um, oil refining, steel making. So these are these are these are existing uses. Millions of tons of hydrogen used around the world every year for that. It's not really used in the energy sector much at all, and that's 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 really where you know where where my work comes in. So the ways that this hydrogen that's used in industry is produced right now is um, from fossil fuels. So so just to to talk a bit about something that I don't like to talk about is this these colours of hydrogen. Uh, people people have they, people have started talking about this hydrogen rainbow. So hydrogen in reality, of course, has no colour, but there are there are three key colours that that people talking about hydrogen use, and they are grey, blue, and green. Grey hydrogen is how ninety five percent of the world's hydrogen is produced right now. That means that we've taken a fossil fuel, normally natural gas, heated it up at high pressure, and um, the the hydrogen separates from the carbon. Now, obviously, because the natural gas contained carbon in the first place, that carbon has to go somewhere. So it's released as carbon dioxide. So that's a carbon-intensive process. So 95% of the world's hydrogen right now releases carbon dioxide in its, in its, in its production. That's called grey hydrogen. Blue hydrogen, then, is if we use the... If we capture that carbon, we compress it and store it somewhere, perhaps in an old oil field or an old gas field or a salt cavern, that, that, that changes the hydrogen's colour to blue. And this, until the... Russian invasion of Ukraine, this was seen as one of the two competing uh, viable um, low emissions hydrogen production technologies. Because of Europe's dependence on importing natural gas, blue hydrogen has really been, has really fallen very much out of favour in the last, in the last couple of months because pursuing a blue hydrogen policy would mean pursuing an import dependent and at that point a Russian dependent hydrogen policy. So, 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 you know, certainly in my own work and if, if for what's relevant to Ireland, we, we keep blue hydrogen to the side. Green hydrogen then is only responsible for about 5% of current hydrogen production. And that is where we use electricity and it has to be renewable electricity um, to split water through a process called electrolysis. So we, 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 we combine water with electricity in an electrolyzer, split the hydrogen from the oxygen. And if we compress that hydrogen or liquefy that hydrogen, we've got a very high density store of chemical energy. And and one of the nice things about doing this with hydrogen, about doing energy storage with hydrogen is its density. It's, it's, it's um, in terms of costs per unit energy stored, it comes in quite cheap. It comes in a lot cheaper than many of the other energy storage technologies. But in terms of delivering that energy quickly, in terms of, of delivering that, that you know, in, if we look at the cost in terms of power delivered, it comes out quite expensive. So, so, so the, you know, so how, how hydrogen is produced and how we would see it being produced in a renewable energy system, such as one we're pursuing in Ireland, 
would be through this green hydrogen route. Um, then on the end use side, we can think about use as a transport fuel, use as a heating fuel, or use to go back to electricity again. And so really make the analogy of a battery with hydrogen. So on the transport side, um, for road transport, what most um, people are thinking about now is fuel cell vehicles. So a fuel cell vehicle is essentially an electric vehicle. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a vehicle driven by electric motors, but the source of the electricity, rather than being solely a battery, is a fuel cell, where the fuel cell performs the reverse of electrolysis, takes the hydrogen, converts it back into electricity with water as the byproduct. These vehicles are, because of the added complexity of having to produce hydrogen and convert the hydrogen back to electricity, these vehicles are much less efficient than electric vehicles. But because of the energy density of hydrogen, they typically have longer ranges and shorter refueling times than, than an electric vehicle, but have a charging time. So, so, so there's, there's, there's swings and roundabouts that we can get into there. There's also the idea then that you could burn hydrogen in an engine. So, so there's, uh, there's, there's moves underway. Some of the, some of the car makers are looking at burning hydrogen in internal combustion engines. Um, one of the issues with this is that hydrogen burns a lot hotter than, than other fossil fuels. And when you have high temperature combustion, you have the production of NOx. So these things that affect air quality that can get into people's lungs. So even though hydrogen has no carbon, when it's burned in a traditional engine, it can produce these, these, these harmful emissions. So we need to be very careful about that. So that's on the, the sort of the, the transport side. On the heating side, we can burn hydrogen in many industrial furnaces with relatively low costs to refit, say, if we have a natural gas furnace for glass making or, or, or um, um, some kind of high, high temperature process. These furnaces can be converted relatively easily to burn, to burn hydrogen. Um, Hydrogen has been proposed by some people as a fuel for domestic boilers. It's sort of unclear about the economic case for that because, you know, we need to think about how does hydrogen stack up from a cost perspective with respect to the other decarbonisation techniques. And, and, you know, I, I think most people looking at this problem would agree that pursuing a retrofit and heat pump solution would would probably work out better. But I don't know if that that question has been bottomed out yet. And then finally, to go back to electricity. So if we think about storing renewable electricity as hydrogen and then converting it back to electricity again, uh, we'd be looking either at fuel cells, similar to what I talked about in the vehicles, or burning hydrogen in, in gas turbines. So um, about, somewhere around half of Ireland's electricity is delivered by gas turbine power plants that are supplied by natural gas. So depending on the exact type of gas turbine employed, we could, we could blend in anywhere from about 10% to 50% hydrogen in these, in these gas turbines. And there's research efforts underway at the moment to try and up that hydrogen concentration up to 100%. There's a power station in the US just started operating on 100% hydrogen in the last few weeks. So, so, so the, the, um, so there's a number of different ways it can be used, but in the end of the day, it comes down to either burning it or using it in a fuel cell and converting it back to electricity. And when we look at the production of hydrogen and we look at the, um, the electrolyzers, is an electrolyzer an electrolyzer or are there, um, is it quite a passive device? Are there various ranges of efficiencies that can be gained from an electrolyzer? Um, what's the scope there for kind of technology gains there and also the materials involved in producing yeah, electrolyzers? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned efficiency. So, yeah, so, so there's, there's, there's two main families of commercially available electrolyzer technology. They're called alkaline and PEM or proton exchange membrane. And these alkaline technology has been around for nearly 100 years. Um, uh, proton exchange membranes more recent. They have, they have their, their pros and cons. Alkaline is a highly developed, fairly efficient technology. So if we talk about, sorry, I say fairly efficient in a hydrogen sense, the efficiencies I'm about to mention now are not, are not a patch on, say, flywheel storage efficiency or anything like that. So... Um, the state-of-the-art alkaline technologies, when you convert 
a megawatt hour of electricity into hydrogen, you'd get about 70% conversion efficiency. Um, so of electrical energy into, into hydrogen energy, proton exchange membrane would be a little bit lower. But what you gain with proton exchange membrane is you have a much more responsive electrolyzer. So, so there's some indications that, that PEM electrolyzers could be uh, more suitable for use on highly variable renewable systems. But that's, that's again, I think the, the alkaline makers would say, well, our designs haven't been tested yet on this. So, so, so there's, there's healthy competition between those two technologies. There's a couple of other high temperature technologies coming, coming online, um, solid oxide electrolyzers um, that are maybe not quite commercial yet, but they offer much, much higher efficiencies up in the 80s uh, percent of efficiencies, which could be, that could be a breakthrough. It's unclear though, if they would be able to sort of load follow um, as, the, as, as, as the PEM technology can. And then in converting the hydrogen back to, say, just if, if we're going with the electricity to electricity round trip, um, if we're burning in a natural gas turbine, so in steady state operation, a good natural gas combined cycle turbine can get about 60% efficiency. We would probably have to operate a combined cycle if it was burning hydrogen at below optimum conditions because we don't want to approach those high temperatures. So we'd maybe be in the 50s of percentage there. Um, and a fuel cell, a good fuel cell would be somewhere in the 60% efficiency region. So, so like combining our production efficiency with our, with our end use efficiency of hydrogen, the round trip efficiency is not high. It'd be in the 40s uh, percentage wise. So that sort of gets at what um, I said, where hydrogen should be used where it's, where it's needed and, and, you know, uh, so if we're looking at short-term energy storage, multiple charges and discharges a day, hydrogen would not be the technology that you'd want to that you'd want to pursue for that. Its efficiency is just too low. But if we want mobile energy that can be stored for very very long periods of time, then it starts to become more interesting. And we always have to consider resource depletion with everything. Right? You yep. know, its use of natural resources. So if you look at um, electrolyzers. And also the membranes for storing hydrogen, which I'd imagine are quite challenging to, to deal with. Is there a huge requirement for exotic materials there um, that would make scaling of the hydrogen industry challenging? Or is there? It's, it's, it, I think it's going to face similar issues as the, as the lithium ion technologies um, have, have, have started to face. So for the PEM uh, for the proton exchange membrane technologies, there is a requirement for platinum, and platinum's a, a rare, a rare metal. Um, for the types of fuel cells that are being considered for vehicles, fuel cell vehicles, they would require platinum as well. Now, there's so the the alkaline um, technologies they would not have a a, a requirement for for rare rare materials and the storage technologies they 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 wouldn't require anything exotic either but what i would just say about both about the hydrogen about the technologies needed for the hydrogen um sorry about the materials needed for the hydrogen technologies and the battery technologies there's research underway across the board on on batteries and on hydrogen to reduce the loading of these rare materials you know there's ways of using rather than using platinum particles in, in electrolyzers, you can use platinum nanoparticles that are mounted onto a much cheaper substrate material, a much more abundant substrate material. And my understanding is that in, in the lithium-ion battery community, they're looking at similar ideas to this, that reducing the loading of cobalt, which is, which is the real critical material for the, for the lithium batteries. And then the other area that's being pursued, both on batteries and on hydrogen technologies, is recycling. That can you can you recycle the the original material from an end of life system? Hydrogen systems have not reached the end of life yet in significant numbers for this to be to have developed fully as an industry. But I would expect, as both the battery and the hydrogen industry grow, that recycling will start to play a bigger and bigger role in where the materials come from. And given the nature of hydrogen, the size of hydrogen, is the permeability of the storage um, the storage mechanism is that an issue? Does it continue to be an issue? It would have been previously, I think, discussed as an issue, or has that been largely resolved? Yeah, no, it's it's um, 
so so yeah when people talk about permeability for hydrogen uh because yeah it's 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 the smallest molecule there is um this this is seen as an issue if we were to put hydrogen into an unmodified say natural gas grid the natural gas grid is is um is designed to hold methane methane molecules which are substantially bigger than hydrogen molecules so if we were to use the existing methane grid it would not be able to hold 100% hydrogen um there would be there would be leakage so there are seals to do that there are materials to do that there's thousands of kilometers of hydrogen only pipeline across the US across Germany Belgium places that use hydrogen as an industrial gas so and these these would have no leakage from them at all um in terms of storage then most most hydrogen storage right now is done as a high pressure gas and that would be um either steel or carbon fiber composite um uh cylinders and again those would have extremely low leakage rates i, I would say virtually no leakage okay. um at the moment you know are you, when when a power station is built in ireland there's a requirement for it to be dual fuel and historically that would have been looking at the likes of if it's a gas turbine, it can also run on a diesel fuel. Mm. Um, but now there's a, you know, there is a requirement for new plants coming online to be hydrogen compatible. Um, so do you, that's a, a high percentage of hydrogen as opposed to 100% hydrogen then that they're talking about with those items. At the moment it is. So, so, so the current commercially available technologies um, would be, you know, modern large combined cycle plant could take maybe 30% hydrogen. Um, that's 30% hydrogen by volume, not by energy content. Just given the lightness of the hydrogen gas, 30% volume content of hydrogen translates to about 10% of the energy content uh, going into the turbine being hydrogen. So modern combined cycle plants can take that. Um, modern open cycle plants, so peaking plants, can take much more. So so uh, but up to maybe 60 to 80% by volume hydrogen could go in there but there the the OEMs are 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 furiously dusting off their 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 hydrogen turbine designs and coming back with pure hydrogen burning models and um so i would expect over the next couple of years that we're going to see the major manufacturers of turbines coming out with 100% hydrogen engines that have low NOx emissions as well. So if we have hydrogen running in a conventional thermal plant and it's spinning on the system, it is going to be providing those faster services we spoke about in terms of like your fast frequency response. It's going to have inertia. Um, uh, if we're using fuel cells and we're looking at uh, hydrogen uh, hydrogen fuel cells providing similar services to batteries in terms of high-speed response, mm-hmm. what's the capability there with hydrogen um, in terms of ramp times? Yeah, so hydrogen fuel cells are, are a... Um, they they are not as widely used as as batteries for this purpose. And I don't think they've been used for this purpose so far. Um, certainly from what I know of, of response times and ramp rates, they would not be in the, you know, in the millisecond range. They they wouldn't be capable of the, the FFR type services. But for some of the slower timescales on the order of the, you know, a, f- a few seconds out to minutes, I think that that would be achievable for hydrogen fuel cells. The thing with fuel cells is that, that, that they, they have been focused mostly on propulsion, on, on transport applications. So most fuel cells are sort of designed around the hundreds of kilowatts range and they haven't really been pursued into the megawatts range yet. Now, some, um, some of the fuel cell companies are looking at uh, ship propulsion and um, that will take them into the megawatt range. But I still think we're some way off seeing hydrogen fuel cells for grid applications on the megawatt range. Okay. And so then returning, Frank, to early on, we spoke about the range of uh, characteristics of power plants that need to be replaced. So uh, the renewable energy we're integrating in Ireland isn't a like-for-like replacement with what it's displacing. Uh, So we need to basically uh, substitute characteristics with other forms, particularly different forms of storage. There's one thing that that I would find interesting is that if... To date, we haven't had very much solar on the power system. So perhaps there's, you know, there's some element of reducing the problem by bringing on a lot of solar because if we have that two-week high-pressure um, frost conditions, we should have solar that would turn it from being a two-week problem to being a within-day problem and an opportunity to replenish storage. So we have to, I suppose, also look at the roles that other technologies will play. But 
looking back to, we spoke about the different technologies earlier on, and we're talking about everything from, you know, in Ireland, we have, I think, probably the fastest frequent, the fastest of the frequency response mechanisms mm-hmm. anywhere in terms of it, 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 it pays you uh, increased amounts uh, right up to being able to perform at 150 milliseconds. So that just highlights the importance of speed. So from the technologies that focus on speed um, to the technologies that focus on long duration and, and everything in between, there's a range of options. There's huge overlapping capabilities between the technologies. But in your mind, can you take us through the roles that you probably think are plausible roles for different technologies to play in solving the challenges on the electricity system? Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd say starting at the, the, the fastest things, um, flywheels, I think, are good for frequency regulation um, because they... They like to both absorb and be able to uh, inject power into the grid, and they can do it an unlimited number of times. Um, batteries can do the same, but they're, they're, there's a limitation on the number of uh, cycles, of full cycles. Um, the uh, synchronous condensers are good for inertia. Um, lithium-ion batteries can do anything from, as you say, a fraction of a second um, with durations up to probably six hours or so um, I think maybe once you get beyond that you're into something like flow batteries um, it depends on uh, you know the amount of storage uh, so something like liquid air energy storage uh, could be good um, where you can where it's a high density of, of storage that could keep you going for quite a long time um, I think they're probably the um, the, the main ones. ones. One of the things that you mentioned, though, about um, uh, about uh, solar is that one, particularly in the winter time, you know, the solar um, generation is going down at the same time that it's getting dark, and your your um, demand is going up as your the amount of solar generation is going down. So, if you look at it on a curve, you get what's called a, a, um, a duck curve with a, a long neck. So you've got a period there, maybe for an hour, where you need a lot of replacement of the of the solar. Um, so you need you need something that can cover, say, two hours storage. So you know, lithium ion batteries, two hours storage, doing it once a day. That's an ideal thing um, for, for for that. So there's horses for courses. Yeah, but I guess you need to massively overbuild the solar if. When it's at its lowest output during the winter, it can give you that 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 peak in the day that allow that allows you to recharge. And when you look at those, um, so I suppose a number of technologies that can meet the FFR requirements, um, and on a cost basis, so between something like a flywheel, a synchronous den- condenser, lithium-ion battery, um, uh, so on a cost basis, is is that some of them are better for in terms of the, the short term investment or that some of them pay off better over the long term or how do you how do you think of those well i think lithium ion beats them all at the moment okay. um in terms of cost um flywheels flywheels are good um because they can do an unlimited number of cycles whereas for ffr fast frequency response that's really for when there's a trip in the system and that might happen 30 times a year so your plant is there as an insurance policy. It's there sitting there basically doing nothing most of the time. And then suddenly there's a dip in the system frequency and it goes bang and this um, goes up to full output in 150, 200 milliseconds. Yeah. Um, so lithium ion is very good for that. Um, flywheels would be quite expensive if they were sitting there not doing much most of the time. And, of course, flywheels do have a running cost all of the time as well, right? They do. You, 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 flywheels take a bit of energy, even though, they're, um, um, even though they're rotating in a vacuum and they have very low losses, they still take a certain amount of energy all the time to keep, it, um, to, to keep them running. But I suppose, it, so with lithium-ion, with a flywheel, you're not going to have to replace it anytime soon. And uh, lithium-ion, you are going to have to replace it, but that there is a residual value, I guess, if there is a second, a second use of it. And I suppose there's also an element of kind of um, where uh, demand response complements storage as well, and they, they, they work well together in that. When we look about the, you, we talk about trips on the system, and if you've got a, if you've got 100 power plants on the system, um reasonably random as to which one is going to trip. And there are various sizes. And if we look at it, that 90% 
of so the 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 grid operator prepares for what's the largest one that can possibly trip and actually generally what sets that is the interconnector what's the biggest yeah. thing and that's what you have to have you have to have something your safety net there for that but 90% of so generally it's a you know 500 megawatts and but if 90% of the plants on the system that are likely to trip are actually under 100 megawatts mm-hmm. that plays quite well in that where demand response is quite poor is being used all the time so flywheels, lithium-ion batteries provide incredibly good regulation. Demand response and using electricity customers and changing what they do, mm. you can't do that because your pool of participating customers will shrink dramatically if they're called upon too often. But it's actually a rarer event that's of larger magnitude. So there's a kind of a, a we have to look at kind of optimum solutions in that, I suppose, even when we look at storage and demand response and hydrogen's role in storage, etc. it's about finding what is the best use of these to give the for for the appropriate uh, use case? So demand response can deal with large um, uh, events, but only if you call on it very few times. If you call on it a lot, it can't deal with them. Whereas obviously, then the storage mechanisms mechanisms are absolutely key for that re- for that reliable regulation. And if we go then towards longer duration, and you're talking about um, the the likes of of flow batteries on the system. Um, potentially compressed air energy storage as well and compressed hydrogen as well. Um, do they start to become more cost-effective for your longer duration storage? Is that where they'd play a role? I think so. Um, the, the thing about those sort of plants is they're very high capital cost. Um, so, you know, that's where the markets come in as to, you know, do you have a market that will pay enough upfront so that somebody can build it or give security of revenue over a long enough period that somebody will go and build it? Like pump storage, I suppose, is the ultimate example of that. Like it cost an awful lot to build pump storage. I don't think we'd ever build pump storage in Ireland again unless we decided there was a strategic reason that we wanted it. Like the issues that you raised, you know, are we going to run out of cobalt or are we going to run out of something that it makes it no longer possible uh, to, to, to get batteries? Or there may be a period of time where you know, you can't put in more batteries. So the gov- that's a kind of a government decision. Does Ireland think need more pump storage yeah. even though it's expensive? And if it does, then, you know, how do you, how do you fund that? Do you, give, uh, do you give some developer a 30-year contract or a 20-year contract so they can fund it? Or, you know, is it funded by the state? Or, or how do you do that? I think that'll be a really interesting one to round back on because it's really important to how do we actually stimulate what it is that we need in the long term? And but it kind of an equivalent question around the what's the horse for the course mm. um, with, uh, with the storage technolo- conventional storage technologies we're used to. Um, with hydrogen, we talk about the hydrogen economy. Mm-hmm. So, but there's somewhere in the spectrum of, in, uh, I'm interested to know your view, in the spectrum of, you know, hydrogen is now just used for industrial processes, etc. It's not as really integrated into our energy system. So this notion of a hydrogen economy, which it, it, it completely underpins our entire energy ecosystem. Yeah. Um, there must be some points of inflection there on a chart that's saying that this is uh, this is where hydrogen plays a good role, yeah. where here's where it's optimal. Yeah. So what are the, the valid, um, plausible use cases for hydrogen that make economic sense where there's other alternatives to provide similar services for similar challenges. Yeah, like like um, the, the I one of the first books I read when I started in my journey on hydrogen research was um, Jeremy Rifkin's book called The Hydrogen Economy, and and he had a vision that was sort of prevalent at the time of everything was going to be hydrogen powered. Hydrogen would 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 be the backup to all renewables. Um, that 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 view no longer prevails. Um, and it's certainly it's not it's not one that I would uh, ascribe to. Uh, hydrogen to me has got a relatively small but crucial role in the in a sustainable energy system, and that would be for those difficult to abate sectors, those diff, those really difficult to decarbonize sectors, heavy duty transport on roads, um, aircraft, ships, various types of industrial processes, and long duration storage. It's also got a role, I think, this is maybe casting forward in time, at least 10 years, but if we realise in Ireland our offshore um, uh, renewable potential, there are tens of gigawatts of potential offshore Ireland. Even if we electrify our entire economy, 
we will have more offshore wind tidal wave than we know what to do with. How can we find a way to, you know, can we can we become an energy exporter? It sounds, it's you know, it might sound a little strange when we're in the midst of an energy security crisis, but but it's the kind of thing that that you know we have an industry, a worldwide industry, the biggest industry in the world is moving chemical energy by ships and by pipelines. Can we replace that chemical energy with renewable chemical energy? Could it be hydrogen that is that is that is used for intercontinental energy trade? The um, the International Renewable Energy Agency, uh, IRENA, produced a really interesting study recently on the geopolitics of renewable energy, and a huge focus of it was on hydrogen. The renewable energy powers will not be the same countries as the, or they may not be the same countries as the the fossil fuel powers. So. How will the balance of power shift and how will this energy resource get around the world? If I'm a wind farm or a solar farm operator in Namibia, which has got the best wind and solar resources in the world, how do I get my energy to market? And so they are they are looking at hydrogen as a way of, of, of exporting their energy. I sort of went into a bit of a rabbit war in there, but but um the the you know, like um there's a great quote from Michael Liebreich who talks about hydrogen being the champagne of the energy system. It's something that you want to use sparingly, but it really hits the spot, you know. And 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 so so you know, I would, I don't know if I'd use that exact metaphor, but but used in the right way, hydrogen has got a, an important role underpinning the long-term storage, the long-term stability of a variable renewable-based energy system. And what are the use cases that are that you that you hear spoken about that you th- that you hear and you think probably not. I I I think it, to me, seeing the progress that has been that have been made on battery electric vehicles, I I I do I do find it difficult to believe that we will have hydrogen powered cars. Uh, you know, there are a few hydrogen powered cars are around, and some you know, Hyundai and Toyota uh, manufacture them, but I don't think they're going to be mainstream technologies. I, I, I think as well for most, for most homes, for most domestic settings, I, I would think that um, hydrogen heating, hydrogen use in boilers is probably not going to be a feasible option. Maybe in certain cases where we've got, you know, gas grid connected, high density housing that just would not be suitable for a retrofit um, uh, that 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 could be a case for hydrogen retrofit and boilers, but I think by and large, and most studies from around the world are sort of showing this that that retrofit heat pumps works for the majority of cases. So those would be the two: the personal mobility and domestic heating would be two that I think would be off the table for hydrogen. But you know, long distance trucking. Um, is certainly a very interesting one for hydrogen, um, especially if you want the flexibility to to go 400, 500, 600 kilometers a day. Um, when you start to get to shipping and aviation, these are these are sectors where we're really only scratching the surface of how we can decarbonize these. Like the the major route for decarbonizing the shipping industry until this year was converting from heavy fuel oil to liquefied natural gas. Now, I'm sure anyone who bought a liquefied natural gas powered ship in the last while is probably not too happy at their, at their investment. So there's, you know, the, the, the routes to decarbonizing shipping and aviation all pass through chemical energy sources. And when they're passing through chemical energy sources, hydrogen must play a role there. So I, back to your champagne analogy is that Champagne isn't a drink for every occasion, but there's some occasions when only champagne will do. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. that, so particularly when you're looking at those use cases, those, those are the use cases that we don't have answers to. We're yeah. looking at you know, aviation, shipping, your long-distance haulage, and that is, it's critical that, that those are addressed to, mm-hmm. to resolve the challenge, and that's where hydrogen can really trump the other technologies, which is key. And I, I suppose in kind of opening this up, right, so... We've really looked at a lot of various options to address various challenges. And the question has to arise in terms of why aren't we doing it all right now? And what are, they, what are the current impediments that exist? And what do we need to do to really progress this? Time is of the essence. Mm. Time is really mm. of the essence here. And we need to move fast in order to, uh, to take away the barriers 
that are limiting progress so that this, we can have quick deployment of solutions to deliver decarbonisation, but energy security um, mm-hmm. being paramount. So I suppose to both of you, maybe starting with Frank, around if we look at the, the path forward, um, what needs to change that gets us to where we need to go? I, th- I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one of them that needs to be done um, fairly immediately is to um, create the right markets because, I mean, everything nowadays is dependent on markets unless the government is going to intervene, which it may do on certain occasions. So there's a good market at the moment for system services for this grid stability stuff. Uh, once you get out to, um, say, four-hour batteries, they're not financially viable at the moment because in the electricity market, it was designed for a completely different market. It was designed for a market where a lot of the, the money was in energy with, with fossil fuels. Uh, now, most of, most of that, the, the, the energy component is going to go down. Um, so there's money in system services. There's, thankfully, there's capacity payments in Ireland, which there isn't in all, in all, in all countries. Um, so I think the, the short-term route is to increase capacity payments um, for different kinds of technologies and to recognise that some of those longer duration, um, well, some of the storage is really an insurance policy. And so it needs to be thought of as an insurance policy rather than as a utility. Um, and the, the, the market needs to reflect that. Um, one of the things that will stop us getting to the 2030 targets even and uh, is, is the ability to connect new plants to the grid uh, because there are certain sections of the grid that are congested and energy storage could help solve some of those problems if it were strategically placed that you could free up parts of the grid where you could then connect more things. There is no market for that. So there are examples where um, there's either no market or the market isn't, isn't suitable at the moment and that needs to be changed. I think at a more fundamental level, um, there needs to be a policy um, and now I know that the department is, lo- is, is actually at the moment developing a, a policy for energy storage and I'm delighted to, to hear that they're doing that. But that policy needs to be concrete. There needs to be a strategy and there needs to be a plan. And the plan needs to have targets in it. I mean, the plan at the moment has targets for solar power, targets for wind power. It doesn't have targets for uh, energy storage of a half an hour, two hours, eight hours. It needs to get down to that sort of detailed level that there are targets. And then you see, okay, to meet these targets, what do we have to do? How many plants do we have to put in? How are we going to do that? Um, I think that's kind of the outline of the yeah. solution. And, uh, you know, the, the market's point is, is widely made by a lot of... Um, a lot of facets of this whole uh, move towards renewable energy because, you know, we've moved, it, it, with ISEM in 2018, we moved to uh, a market largely based on, it's a Nord Pool design, uh, which is uh, not, uh, doesn't support renewables really in terms of, it's based on the price being set by the operating cost of the most expensive generator that's needed to operate at any point in time. That's what everybody gets paid. When you bring zero cost energy onto the system, nobody gets paid anything. So obviously that doesn't work as, a, as an electricity market. But also then, I suppose it's also our, would certainly be our position as well, is that as you go towards more, more renewables, your value shifts from energy to ancillary services. Mm. But you mentioned capacity payments. I suppose just for clarity on capacity payments, that they're there to make sure that there's effectively a long-term base payment that's paid out to those who are providing certainty. That's what it's there for. It's to give a base, base payment to provide certainty for having the resources available to you and then those providers can build upon that and actually make some money on top of it based on the market events. But I suppose at least give some level of certainty and that's key. And then from, from, from a hydrogen uh, perspective, uh, what do we need to, to really bring hydrogen to bear in those applications? We said hydrogen is the, is the champagne. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, the first thing has been achieved and the first thing is that hydrogen has only become a viable option as the world's ambitions have lifted to be net zero by 2050 and um so so that's so so that's a good first step another good step has been the european union has defined a hydrogen strategy for the for the eu as a whole and these ambi- that was launched 2 years ago 
and the ambitions were for hydrogen by 2030 were doubled two weeks ago with the Repower EU um, announcements. What we need here in Ireland is a national strategy. And that's and that is thankfully much like the energy storage strategy. A national strategy for Ireland is is currently under development, and um, you know what I hope it would it would contain is clear guidance, clear incentives on directing hydrogen towards these sectors that I've talked about. These ones where hydrogen can actually make a difference. There's no point in hydrogen being directed into something that batteries can do a lot better because it's just going to result in more expensive and energy for everyone. So so uh, there needs to be clear signals on where the hydrogen should go. There also needs to be clear rules on what what um uh, what defines green hydrogen. You know there there's 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 a um the vast majority of the world's hydrogen is not green, is not clean. So so for Ireland to fully see the benefits from hydrogen we need to ensure that it is being produced by renewables. Um, we need to ensure that it's it's um, that the renew. You know, there's a. It's not just that renewables enables hydrogen. Hydrogen also enables renewables. It's an additional route to market. And if we um, if we get the incentives right, um, directing it into heavy duty transport, shipping, aviation, high temperature industry. These these are these these are ways that we can get hydrogen onto the system. That's perfect. I think look, that's a great point to finish up on. Uh, so, Rory, Frank, thanks very much for coming in and educating me today. It's been it's been really fascinating. So, thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you very thank much. You.